People with disabilities sometimes don't have enough money to fully pay for their own housing and care. They need what's called supportive housing. Today, we explore what it takes to create housing to support them in their needs. Welcome to Prairie Design Lab, coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. It's a podcast created by the students, graduates, faculty, and allies of the most experienced architecture faculty in Western Canada. I'm Terry McLeod, the host, producer, and writer of Prairie Design Lab. Welcome to episode 16 called Supportive. Today, we explore the unique aspects of designing housing that is appropriate to the needs of people with a range of disabilities. To do that, I'm joined by two people. Emily Barber of Winnipeg is a University of Manitoba master's student in interior design who took part in a studio all about supportive housing. Amy Gross is the principal with Amy Gross Architects, AGA, in New York City. She helped to guide that studio. She owns a longtime practice specializing in supportive housing. I spoke to them both recently and began by asking Amy Gross to define supportive housing. Supportive housing is housing that is permanent or transitional that provides extra support. So the notion is, is that someone is, has an apartment and in the same facility where they live, they're also providing services. So for example, many of the facilities that Amy Gross Architects designed are built by not-for-profit organization that provides services to people with psychiatric disabilities. Those people need to work with psychologists, therapists, psychiatrists, Sometimes they need someone to talk to about their medication. And the idea of supportive housing is that all those physical and mental supports that are needed to lead a full life are provided in the same place. And what this is, is supportive housing is really a response to the way that throughout the world, we basically warehouse people with disabilities, whether those are people with developmental disabilities, psychiatric disabilities, as I said, people who are non-ambulatory, people who are elderly and have dementia. I mean, there's a, obviously a very broad range of issues that people have. And previously, many of those people were institutionalized tragically. Many of them were living in an SRO environment, single room occupancy with no supports at all and unsafe. So the notion here is, is that in one place, you can provide everything that people need, which is not just from a psychiatric standpoint or developmental disability standpoint, but what all of us need, which is socialization, which is really the best way to live. The idea is that supportive housing provides a, for a variety of techniques, a way to give support and, and help to people who uh, need it. Emily, what got you interested in supportive housing? Personally, I didn't know what it was up until my studio class. My prof, Jason, had suggested we do this as our main focus for studio. And everyone enjoyed the topic and liked it and had interest. So we moved forward with that. But a lot of us weren't sure what it was at the beginning. And so there was an extensive amount of research we put into it. And I learned quite a lot. And was happy about that. I saw your presentation in the studio uh, on Zoom. And if I have it right, you designed your supportive housing based on the concept of the body. Yes, correct. What, what did that mean? 
So I chose to do inclusionary housing because uh, we were allowed to choose whatever type of affordable or supportive housing we wanted to focus on. For me, inclusionary housing was what I chose. And that means it isn't necessarily housing for homeless. It's like preventing people from becoming homeless. So if you can't afford your housing anymore due to new development, because the prices in rent go up in that area due to the new development, inclusionary housing is a way to prevent those people from becoming homeless. For me, I chose to focus on the body because through my research, a lot of people, when they need to get over trauma, no matter the extent of their trauma, they need to have a connection between their mind, body, and soul. If there isn't a connection, if there's a disconnect anywhere in those three elements, then they can't overcome that trauma. So for me, through the research, I found there's a lot of people that do go through trauma. So that's why I focused on body. I just wanted to really embody what those three things mean. And there were elements of your design that were physical manifestations of the mind, body, and soul, right? Correct. So on the first level, um, that was supposed to be the mind. So I focused on very structural lines and materiality. So I used a lot of um, steel and concrete and brick because for me, the mind represents that. It's without the mind, your body can't function. So it's very structural. And then the second level was supposed to be the body. It was a lot of soft textures and very, the focus was keeping on comfortable So a lot of it were very nice, happy tones as well, like yellows and greens that relate to the sun and happiness and connect you to the outdoors and then very light and soft tone woods. And then um, lastly, the residential levels were supposed to be soul. since that's where you feel as most of yourself and you can really just relax and be who you are. So those really, I wanted to focus on, those rooms to be very versatile and anyone could live in those spaces without feeling unwelcomed. I just want to applaud Emily for, and, and your colleagues at school because each project was, had such insight and such empathy for the people who lived in these, in these buildings. And that's a, that, you know, my experience is it takes years to get that empathy. So I think your teacher and among your community you created as students, i it was a great experience being watching. Amy, where do you start in designing a supportive housing facility? That's a great question. The first place to start is to really understand in all aspects possible, the population that you're serving. So we have uh, been very fortunate in our over 35 years of business. We have a number of clients that have been our clients for over 20 years. And we have a comfort in visiting the buildings we've designed for them and other properties that they own to basically observe the type of population that would live in the building. Clearly, we don't know exactly who's going to live in the building, but if somebody has a psychiatric diagnosis or is non-ambulatory or is a senior with issues, observing that population, how they move and how they relate to other people is very helpful. Now, clearly we're all human beings and somebody with an issue is just as much of a human being as any of us. So it's not as if there's some paradigm that you could describe a particular population, but there are things that we know and we observe um, with individuals and also as importantly, how each organization 
helps those people. So in other words, we have some clients that are very involved in people's lives and know what's going on on a daily basis. We have other clients who pull away more and that ends up getting reflected in the architecture because the relationship between where the staff is located, for example, and where the residents are located. So one of the ways is by observation. And the other is we've been doing this for decades and we've learned anecdotally those things that can be very effective. And simply put, I think that light is a very, very important key to keeping people calm. I think for all of us, it is. For people who have a particular disability, I think everything that helps us as people who might operate in a different sphere than somebody who has a disability, all those things that help us as individuals become that much more pronounced from people who need the extra help. So having environments that are welcoming and that increase socialization while still allowing people to have their own privacy, those are sort of common constructs that we're always making sure that, that we include. And then obviously, there's as architects, there are the topologies of the site and the geography of the site and the neighborhood. There's so many other factors that we have to research to really understand how we would go about working on a project. Emily, you gave us a preliminary sketch of some of the architectural characteristics of the uh, supportive housing that you would create. What do you think as you listen to Amy talk today about the characteristics that she sees as being valuable? I think there's definitely overlap. Just like, for instance, when me and Amy had our conversation about the Delson, that her um, architectural firm had designed a couple years ago, the class took knowledge away from that, like um, that supportive housing focused on art as being a tool of healing. And I know there's students in my class that took that directly and applied that to their design. I didn't necessarily use it, but of course I used a lot of other stuff we talked about. But I think that if you can just find inspiration and something like this, then that's all that matters. That's true. It's the the inspiration. And, you know, I will say that it is very inspirational as an architect and as, as any type of designer to work with these populations because you see in real time the impact that you have as a designer. You know, sometimes as designers, not to put these people down, but it's often about looking good and only looking good. But to have the opportunity to create beautiful space in service of people that need it and see how that beautiful space affects their behavior is extraordinarily rewarding. And it's also a huge learning curve because medications change, wheelchair design changes. There's so many ways that the society at large is working with these populations. And as architects, to keep up with that is a very important part of serving those people. What's the challenge for you, Amy, in terms of dealing with the people who live in the supportive housing? The the Delson that uh, mm-hmm. Emily just mentioned houses largely people with psychiatric disabilities, if I have that Correct. right. What's that mean about what you do in terms of design? The key is to create a very calming environment. And there's a lot of ways that that can be done. But I think the idea is that people who Again, there's a broad range of symptoms and modalities that people have with psychiatric issues. But I would say in general, anxiety is part of it. Depression is part of it. 
And all of those conditions, even for those of us who might go through that, you know, not every day, but, you know, we all deal with this as human beings. The key, I think, is serenity. And one of the ways that we do that is by creating a variety of environments. I think that when we live together with a group of people, every day we are slightly different and we have slightly different needs. And as architects, our job is to provide the kind of environment that will allow people to live at the moment that they're living. So for example, um, in many of our projects, we have what we call outdoor rooms, which other people might call gardens, but they, the idea is to live outside, to be able to have a cup of coffee or read a book and go outside and commune with the birds and with the butterflies and with flowers. That's a very, very important part of life. It's not the, just the notion of I'm getting out of my apartment, I'm taking a walk, but having private open space. I think is really critical. And then within that outdoor room, we have a series of rooms. So we have in the various gardens that we've worked with over the years, we have some areas for eating and some areas with just a bench where a visitor could come and have a nice quiet conversation with somebody. Others where we could have a barbecue area so people could socialize together and eat together. So I think the open space is very important. I had mentioned um, light and that clearly is a, is a critical piece. And the, what I mean by light is not just that it be bright, but modulated light. So again, in terms of the variety, you could have some spaces that are very bright, not glary, but bright, and others which are much more subtle and shadowy. So it's the, the idea is to think about the subtlety of space, which you know, has so much depth in terms of thinking about all the ways that we can manipulate things. And then clearly there's texture and color, uh, which is what, as Emily was talking about in her project, is that depending on what materials surround you, your view of your, that surrounding can change. So we use a lot of really natural materials, terrazzo floors, a range of bricks, tiles, uh, the furnishings. We do all the furnishings and all the projects that we design. We don't, um, that's not a separate entity. That's a part of our approach. So the coloration, what it feels like to sit in a chair and feel this, that your skin against the fabric. I mean, the, it goes from the most sublime to obviously very big in terms of what the building looks like. But I think what connects it all is this sense of belonging to community. I think for all of us and the buildings that we all admire and the interior spaces we admire, they have a memory to them that makes us feel that they're a part of our life. You know, I often talk about the clock at Grand Central Station, which is basically a clock that's seven feet in diameter, but it has this centrality in the space and the way that the light hits it. If you say to anybody who's visited New York, have you been to Grand Central? That clock becomes that place that says, oh, that's my Grand Central. Yes, I've been at that clock. You know, we all have sort of these touchstones in our life. And I think what we're very proud of is that the design of our buildings from the facade all the way through all of its aspects does have a memory, a sense to it. So that if someone lives there, many of whom, by the way, um, particularly in the psychiatric situation, or for example, we're doing a building for seniors now who are coming out of the shelter system, they don't have that sense of home in their life. And to live in an attractive environment that's memorable is very much about creating that sense of stability. This is my home. 
Very different than this is the apartment I live in. Emily, in what way have Amy's design principles affected the way that you think about supportive housing? For example, some of the topics she just talked about uh, were things that I used to influence my project, and I know other students did as well. I had a community garden because we had talked about how important Mm -hmm. it is for these people to be educated, well, not just them, but everyone to be educated on um, healthy living styles and nutrition and how to grow your own food and live in a more sustainable lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So I know for myself, I included a community garden and so did some other students. Some people even had little convenience stores or little grocery Mm -hmm. stores um, be part of their design. And then a lot of people also had those um, outdoor rooms that she was discussing where you would connect the exterior to the interior and kind of make it all feel like one. I also used a lot of the light issues that we had discussed Mm -hmm. where a lot of research shows that having natural light helps a lot with psychology and the serotonin that people need in their life. Mm -hmm. So I tried to include a lot, a lot of light. And I even had some stained glass um, on Mm -hmm. the residential floors to help bring in some colors with that light to just warm up the place and make it feel more welcoming. And all of this ties together with how these people create a community with each other, that this is like their family because a lot of um, these individuals may not have a family or may come Mm, from nothing. So being able to connect to one another in any way, shape or form was really important. Keeping that in mind was one of the reasons why I wanted to do a community garden. And then also just designing spaces that were inviting for people to come together and either just have a conversation with one another to learn about each other or to just be able to sit in the same room and not feel uncomfortable or like feel like you have to stay in your uh, residential space at all times. So I thought those were very, very important. And then another thing that I took from Amy was she said for the Delson, none of the rooms were designed the same. Mm -hmm. And she said that's because everyone's different, that some people like to cook, so they may not want a bigger kitchen than um, a living room. And it might be different for someone else. They might want more of a social space in a smaller kitchen because they like to have friends over or whatnot. So I took that and did that exact same thing in my project. Every single space was completely different, had different number of people that could fit in there. I thought that was really, really special. Like these people can now feel like this is actually their space and that their neighbor's room doesn't look the exact same as theirs. Mm -hmm. So they can really have that unique individuality, which I think is really important. Your project, Emily, was based on a a brick warehouse in the kind of older industrial part of downtown Winnipeg on what was it Sutherland yes correct you unlike Amy don't get to build these things at least yet right (laughs) no (laughs) hypothetical right (laughs) yes correct what kind of a challenge (laughs) did that particular building because you got to understand that specific building in great detail the building had been sold in October to a new um, architect but we had spoken to um, the architect that owned it before that and he said that Sadly, this building realistically would cost so much money to bring up to code because it is so old and very outdated that it is a liability so that the unfortunate part is it might just end up being completely demolished and then Mm -hmm. a new build, which is obviously the whole point of this is we don't want that, that to create a more sustainable 
atmosphere and to fight against climate change, we need to stop building new and find ways to reuse. And so I thought it was very unfortunate that that might end up being the case. But I think that was the biggest limit and struggle with the building is just how outdated it was. And even um, our prof had gone there to take site photos for us since we couldn't go there because of COVID. And he went in the building and was taking photos and even some levels were very uneven. So there, that would be a, another price um, issue to level out all the floors. And the one thing that I thought was really cool <clears throat> that we didn't know about before talking to that architect was there was um, an old fish smoking room on the top level. It was very small, but because it's so close to the river, they would bring the fish there and smoke it up there. So I thought that was really fascinating and something that shouldn't be demolished because, you know, it's part of our (laughs) city and our history. (laughs) Amy, some of your projects are built new and some of them are Mm -hmm. renovations. And Emily mentioned cost. What part do you play in figuring out a way to afford to get these supportive housing units built? We pay a very, very large role in that. I think the issue is is that as architects of affordable buildings, the idea is that the world thinks of affordable as or supportive as affordable for the people who live there, which is true. But to make it affordable for the people to live there, the building has to be built affordably. So we work from the minute we put a, a line on a piece of paper and then clearly when it gets uh, into AutoCAD, we are thinking all the time about what things cost. And I would say the difference in the kind of architecture that AGA does comparative to other some other firms is that our challenge is how do you make beautiful space that doesn't cost a lot of money? And it's not just... Are what we are looking at in terms of what we call general construction, but all the trades. So we work, as all architects do, collaboratively with a series of engineers on all of our projects. And as we are going back and forth talking about the systems, we are talking about ways that we can provide the highest performance, not the highest, but very close to the highest for the most reasonable amount of money. So, for example, we can save money in how much money we spend per square foot on the flooring, but we can also save significant money by the kind of HVAC system that we use. And then there's also another level to that, which is what you had mentioned, Emily, relative to climate change. As architects, it is our responsibility to constantly be thinking about that and design our buildings to be as sustainable as possible. So then there's another level of affordability to address, which is the operational affordability. So I'm very proud to say that we've had many buildings that are lead gold and that we are approaching net zero. We have a building about to start construction that will be one of the most sustainable in New York State, which is going to have a huge solar array and is going to have, this I love, lamb's wool insulation instead of fiberglass. Lamb's wool was used as an insulation in England in the 14th century. The thatch cottages that we know, they were stuffed with lamb's wool and a plaster type of material, which is clearly 100% sustainable. And there's a farmer in Montana who is now breeding sheep with a very, very dense wool, like denser than what you would use for knitting. And the contractor is going to be buying this lamb's wool from him to stuff into our 113 unit building. So it's a lot of lamb's wool. 
So the idea is that we really have to think about the continuum of the building, how it's designed, how it's built, and how it operates. What I love about being an architect is that there's just this constant layering of information. And it's really that layering is the way that we keep it affordable. So it's not just one piece. It's this every decision that is made has to be made in light of cost. So over the years, you know, we are sort of known in New York City for the architects that don't spend more than $4 a square foot for finished materials. So some rep says, oh, I got to come to your office because something just came out, you know, and it's really inexpensive and it's beautiful. You know, so we have a vast library and have a real sort of treasure trove of information of good products. So lighting, for example, lighting fixtures can cover a huge range of costs. And some of it, you're just paying for the name, you're paying for where it's made. But now because of LED, the actual light source of LED is so inexpensive that we can now save more money on lighting than we ever did before. That's another issue, which is keeping up with the technology and looking at less expensive ways of specifying and building things. Emily, speaking of business issues, I noticed one aspect of your project design was businesses on the main floor Mm -hmm. of the complex. Why did you include those? So through research, I had um, read multiple articles that stated um, a lot of people are discriminated against if they live in supportive housing or affordable housing. So I wanted to eliminate any discrimination that might happen. And by doing that, I had placed little shops. They would rent out the space for a certain amount of time and they could, they, you could rent out that I had planned it out per square so you could rent out one square or two or three however big of a space you need and it was just supposed to be local shops so once again connecting the building to the community and creating a bond so that was what I was thinking when I had done that and then there's also a coffee shop so to draw people in from the community Mm -hmm. just because everyone loves coffee so it was a way to have people come there and this would eliminate any discrimination because no one would know who lives in that building then. Because if there's a whole bunch of people from the community coming there and also you as a resident going there, you don't know what person is going where. If they're just there for the shops or going there because they're going home. That would do that. And then also because I was doing inclusionary housing, all of the rent is lower than market value for the residential housing. This isn't done like um, social housing is where it's subsidized by the government. This is done from the actual developers keeping a certain percentage of their building dedicated to affordable housing. So including those shops was a way for them to make back money that they're losing on the residential levels. Amy, how do you work out the affordability costs uh, for the tenants in the complexes that you are involved in. I understand your sources of money can be very diverse. Yeah. Well, I would say as the architect, the what the rent is and the financing is not in our purview. I mean, we're aware of some of it, but that is not in our purview. But I think the the key is, is that supportive housing is different than affordable housing and that supportive housing is often played for in the States. I'm not, unfortunately, I'm not familiar with how it works in Canada, but in the States, many of the people that live in supportive housing are on social security benefits because they don't have the capacity to have a full-time job. So they are getting their rent subsidized by the federal government. 
And then there are various vehicles for building affordable and supportive housing that include tax credits, which is where high wealth individuals or corporations can invest in affordable housing. And they get a very good return, actually, because people don't, affordable housing doesn't fail. You know, there's clearly a huge need for it. So there's a number of different financing vehicles. That, having said all that, Terry, that does not mean that it is easy. And there's a huge, as we know, worldwide shortage of supportive and affordable housing. And I'm really, really enthusiastic about President Biden and Vice President Harris because they have put as a part of their platform when they were running, affordable and supportive housing is a huge, huge part of their platform. So there are many other financing vehicles that have not really been tried yet that they are looking into. And then some vehicles that were tried decades ago that are no longer in place that will hopefully be brought back. Building housing, whether it's luxury or affordable, is an expensive proposition. Building anything is expensive. And the key is all the different ways that you can do it. In the States, if you qualify for affordable housing, you pay one third of your income as a maximum over the course of a year for your rent. So that becomes the rubric against what, what this is. But at the end of the day, building is expensive and it limits, unless there is real government intervention, it limits the amount of housing that is built. Emily, what kind of consideration did you have to give to affordability in your proposed housing unit? Because this is a hypothetical project, we don't look at the cost of each materiality that we're using. The only things we could really focus on trying to be cost effective was the appliances we chose um, for the residential places and the furniture, because those were the things that we could find out the cost for. Flooring and um, wall finishes those we aren't that aware of how much that would cost at that big of a scale. I would say though, Emily, to your credit, the biggest cost savings is, as you said, is working with an existing building. You didn't tear down a lot of walls. You worked with the envelope of the building. And that conservative approach is really a direction of saving money. You know, when you start tearing down bearing walls or sheer walls, and then you have to rebuild them with steel, that becomes very expensive. So I know you were describing that the building is not stable, but I'm saying conceptually, the notion of renovating a building and keeping as much place as possible, that's a very prudent way to, to save money. Emily, this studio was part of your Masters of Interior Design. In what way did your exposure to these ideas, and particularly to Amy Gross, affect your thinking about your future path? I have always been a person that likes to do my designs in a very thoughtful way. I've done projects that were related to like schizophrenia or other issues, um, Parkinson's disease. I'm looking at doing for this studio project, this term, um, a project related to autism. So I feel like this was another layer of knowledge for something I had no knowledge in previously that just helped me grow as a person and a designer to continue designing with empathy um, and continuing a path that cares about the people they're designing for. Amy Gross, we, we have Amy Gross architects focusing on supportive housing in the United States. When we see Emily Barber's supportive housing architecture practice, what advice would you have for her? Wow. <laughs> the first and foremost is, is when you start an architecture practice, 
if that's what you choose to do, Emily, and which I hope you do, it is a business. And I found that when I was in architecture school and design school, the business of being an architect was not discussed. There may be cost issues about building a building, but not what it takes to run a business. So as I've said to many architecture students, the idea of when you're in university to be able to take business classes and understand how to read a ledger and understand what insurance is about and all that stuff is a big piece of it. But then going into specifically the empathic work that you do, I so, so applaud you for that. I think in terms of starting a business, the major in the states, the entities that build this kind of housing are primarily large non-for-profits who serve their community, which could be through housing, could through day treatment centers, could be through senior day, day centers, Uh, We're doing a school now for the deaf, which is a whole other um, wonderful population to work with. But the key is, I think, from a marketing standpoint, if you will, is to really be knowledgeable of the entities in your community that serve the people that you want to design for and become active in their events. I spend a lot of my time meeting people in that community, going to lectures, understanding what the issues are being involved in trade groups, being involved in various advocacy efforts, because it goes back to some of your first questions, Terry, is like, who are these people? You know, And the way that you learn about these people that you're going to design for is working with the people who work with them. There are so many wonderful agencies that are always looking for people to volunteer and to be a part of their legacy and to be a part of their growth. And it is still a minority of architects, in my experience, that have the approach that Emily has. That's why I so applaud you for what your interests are. But at the end of the day, as architects, we are artists. That's a small part of who we are. We take the visual and we make environments out of it. I'm very, very lucky to work with such talented people in my office that where we share this common vision that architecture is a way of making the society better. And so I would say to you, surround yourself with like-minded people like I do. You know, that's, that's the best part is that where you can inspire each other, you know, both inspiration by your colleagues and inspiration by your clients. And people will feel that inspiration and they will definitely hire you. I can guarantee you that. Absolutely. Emily, what do you think when you hear that? I'm excited. <laughs> I can't wait to finish my degree and start my career and move on from education, or maybe not, maybe come back to it and teach, who knows. I definitely agree that surrounding yourself with like-minded people is something that's always going to be beneficial for you. Mm -hmm. Um, You are who you surround yourself with. I think that is a wonderful thing to remember. A question for both of you as we we part ways here. What did I not ask that I should have? (laughs) Oh, wow. No one's ever asked me that question before. (laughs) I have a question for Amy, actually. I'm curious, since we did talk about reuse a lot mm-hmm. and how renovating instead of building new, yes. I'm curious to know if you've come across any issues when you're adding that modern architecture to old. Oh, that's a great question. I, you know, that is sort of a proverbial architecture question, which is, do you remain contextual? In other words, do you really talk to the existing building? Or do you say, I'm my own entity, I'm a new thing, and I'll meet you, but I'm not really going to integrate with you. And I think we've done different projects that have different approaches. I have to say, we have 
for the first time, just an amazing opportunity where a building we just finished, a property next door just became available that it looks like our client is going to buy. So we're going to be doing it another building next to a building we designed. And this is the conversation we've been having in the office. In other words, is it going to be an extension of that visual vocabulary or is it going to be a completely different story of two buildings that happen to be next to each other? But I would say in answer to your question, a lot of it does depend upon the larger context. So in other words, it's not just the relationship between the two properties that are next to each other, but what the whole community is. For example, if there's a community which may have a lot of landmark properties in it, you might need to be more respectful of the existing architectural context than if you were in a neighborhood like the project you designed for school, which is more manufacturing and it doesn't really have its own story, visual story yet. I think like a lot in architecture, there's, there's a certain number of rules, but there's a lot of not rules that you sort of have to play with. And then, of course, there's always the client because the client has their own uh, sensibility and many not-for-profits operate by government funding, but a significant amount of private funding. So they may have something that they need that they want to express. In other words, if they want to nod to the community, they may say, we want something that's very neutral and blends in, or they may want to go another way or something in between. So, you know, as architects, it's not totally in our control. We have to, you know, we are working for somebody else and that dialogue also has to happen to get to that decision. And so Amy, what did I not ask that you (laughs) wanted me to ask? I think what you brought up, but just to expand on that, is this notion of social architecture. In other words, what is the difference between being a designer of a space that is private versus a space that is semi-private like housing versus something that's more open to the public like a museum or um, a symphony orchestra space? And I think Part of this is just because, you know, you're a part, Terry, of this great university is, is when you're in architecture school to really think about that. Because I think sometimes architecture students end up specializing in a particular building type because it happens to be the first job they got. Not because they had this sort of internal desire to do a certain kind of architecture. And obviously, you know, we've all been through the rigors of architecture school. It doesn't give you a lot of time to be contemplative and think about yourself. But I would say that it is, it's a very important thing to think about, why did I become an architect? What does my contribution need to be? And not everybody knows that answer. But then the question is to make sure you're judicious about where you work so that you can sample, in a sense, the different kinds of practices and the different kinds of building types so that when you start to get more into the intermediate part of your career, you're going in the direction that best fits your personality and your interests. Well, Emily, it sounds as if Amy Gross has left you with a lot of things to think about. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much to both of you for taking Thank you. This, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I want to applaud your architecture school for even having this conversation because it is way too rare and the need is tremendous. So I thank you so much. Well, Terry, I have to tell you something. I don't want to get too emotional here, but I have never had an interview like this. I've done a number of interviews in my life, but I am so touched by 
the two of you and the school. And I mean, I cannot tell you, I interview architecture students. They don't have a clue. I mean, now I have people who obviously reach out to us because of what we do. But this is a huge, huge topic. It's like, why do you become a designer? You know, and the, the things we talked about today, I think it's, it's really, I can't tell you how critical it is. You know, somebody ends up working at a, uh, a interior design firm that does high-end residential. They don't think that there's another way in the world, but they think that's all there is. And then they end up doing that. And then maybe 20 years later, they go, why am I doing this? So the fact that you're having this conversation, it's just invaluable. I, I can't thank you enough. I feel thrilled. Amy Gross is the principal with Amy Gross Architects, also known as AGA in New York City. She attended on Zoom a University of Manitoba Masters of Interior Design Studio on supportive housing. She owns a decades-long practice specializing in that area. Emily Barber of Winnipeg is a U of M master's student in interior design. She and eight other students took part in a studio with Amy Gross about supportive housing. Thanks for joining us on Prairie Design Lab. We come to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. Special thanks today to Assistant Professor Jason Shields for organizing today's episode. He is the head of the Masters of Interior Design Studio. Next week on Prairie Design Lab, speaking of interior design, what the heck does bookbinding have to do with interior design? We discover why it's not so unlikely a connection. I'm Terry McLeod the host, producer, and writer of Prairie Design Lab. See you next week.